0: Well, good morning. good morning. All right. Well, ten minutes ago, I thought there was going to be eight of us in the room, and then you finally showed up, so here we are. Hey, there seems to be, uh, at least uh, according to one guy, the confusion over the homework. Um, it's said to do uh, read chapters 14 and 15, and we're actually going to be in 12 and 13 so if you did the homework you're ahead um, look at that way we'll be covering Samson the rest of Samson's life next next week but we're going to get into the early stages of it this week the very early stages of it um, I want to read something to you I was um, um, reading back over something that I wrote uh, earlier in the year on the book of Deuteronomy and and this passage kinda jumped out at me because of all that we're studying um, with The judges and in particular Jephthah and as we move into Samson and uh, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 17 I've given you this as a handout and you can read it later if you want to but in uh, verse 2 chapter 17 to Deuteronomy remember this is uh, before the people get into the land Uh, Moses is addressing them the entire book of Deuteronomy is basically Moses kind of preparing them to go into the land under the leadership of Joshua and so they haven't entered in yet and he says to them, If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or a woman who does, not, who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord, we've heard that phrase multiple times in Judges, in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, Then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. The person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first to... First, um, against him, to put him to death, and afterward, the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, as I read that earlier this week, the thought hit me, how in the world is anybody still alive in Israel? Okay? As we study the book of Judges, they're all idolatrous. They're all worshiping idols. Obviously, they have not kept this law, right? So because if if you pick up the stone to stone somebody probably you're just as guilty as they are so everybody's like let's just ignore that one what we've seen as we've studied this book is an an ever increasing intensity in terms of evil in the lives of the people you know we we've used the analogy of the water circling the drain and going down the drain and with each cycle it gets worse and worse not only do the people get worse so do the judges and so what we're going to see today with the end of Jephthah's life and setting up uh, the entrance into the scene of Samson, things are going to get worse. Just when you thought it couldn't get worse, it does. Uh, this book really just moves forward in such a negative way. And it's, it's, maybe it's one of the reasons pastors don't preach on it, teachers don't teach on it, because it's a pretty negative book. And yet it's there for us to read, to learn from, to grow from, and to Hopefully, apply to our lives, and and what we're going to see in Jephthah's life, and also it'll eventually show up in Samson's life next week, is this idea that the inevitable becomes unavoidable. If you want to live as if God doesn't exist, if you want to play king, if you want to play God, guess what? The inevitable consequences will show up, and that's exactly what we're going to see in the life of this guy named Jephthah. Now, Jonathan introduced us to Jephthah last week, and we saw that he. Um, is in the book of uh, Hebrews, and Ch- Hebrews chapter 11, which is, always blows me away when you see his name and you see Samson's name and you see the names of these guys who seem to never have their act together. But when you see them there, you have to understand in the book of Hebrews, the entire book is about faith. Chapter 11 is all about faith. That's why it's called the, the, um, the Hall of Faith. And the reason these guys are in there is not because they're special over and over again where there's talking about Abraham Noah David Samson Jephthah it says by faith by faith over and over again or through faith faith is a gift of God you don't manufacture it it's not something that God owes you for it's it's something that he makes available to you and allows you to experience so that you can experience his goodness and grace so the fact that they're in there is not a sign that these are the most wonderful people in the world because none of the people in the Hebrews chapter 11 are the most wonderful people in the world. What sets them apart is their relationship with God. And we're going to see in Jephthah that there's a moment when he seems to do what he's supposed to do, but there are many more moments when he steps out from under God's leadership and he does things his way. So over the last weeks, we've looked at all these different judges. We started out with Othniel he was okay Ehud wasn't that bad Shamgar we don't know much about we move through this list and as we get further and further down the drain we end up to Jephthah and Jephthah really has taken this along with Gideon before him further and further away from where God intended it he's a disqualified leader for a disobedient people he's exactly what they deserved Uh, he represents them he's like them he leads according to their way of thinking, and they want him, right? They, they wanted him to be their leader, but he's not the kind of leader God wanted for them. Same thing we're going to see with Samson, same thing we're going to see with King Saul later on in the book of First and Second Samuel. He's a mighty man of valor, but he's an outcast. Uh, Jonathan pointed out the fact that he was cast out of his family. His brothers cast him out. He lost his inheritance. Why? Because his mom's a prostitute. What's really interesting about this word in the Hebrew is that it could very well mean that she's a cult prostitute. Now, what does that mean? Well, in most of the religions of that day, the pagan religions, they had um, prostitution as part of their worship. You would go to the temple and you would have sex with one of the priestesses. Now, think about a church like that here in Fort Worth it would be packed (laughs) with men you know you get up on Sunday morning honey I'm going to church hey take the kids no 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 they don't really have anything for kids Um, um. she's probably obviously she's a prostitute but she could have very well been a cult prostitute and Jonathan made the comment that this wasn't uncommon well, it should have been, right? It should have been uncommon to marry a prostitute. It should have been uncommon to have sex with one. But his mother's a prostitute. And here's what's interesting. In studying his his name and studying this character, his name means he opens. Now, some commentators believe that's a reference to a deity. A deity opens the womb of his mother. He, you know, he was born because the God was involved. Um, it could mean that. It could just mean he opens. It's it's his name and what's interesting is that we're going to find out this guy can't keep his mouth shut. He's always talking, he's always speaking, he's got, you know, verbal vomit. He he's the gift of gab. He just can't stop talking. And we see it over and over again that he negotiates constantly. He negotiates with the the people of Gilead, his people in verse 7. He says things that, that the word he says is over and over in Chapter 11, he says to the leaders of Gilead, he spoke all his words. He sent messengers and he said, and again he sends messengers and he said. Over and over again he's talking. Um, Is there anything wrong with talking? Not necessarily, but you can talk too much. And you can say things you shouldn't say. And you can speak in such a way that it's not in line with the will of God uh, or the commands of God. And we're going to see that's part of what's going to get this guy in trouble. He's a negotiator, so he negotiates with the people of Gilead. They come to him. They want him to be their leader. But before he says yes, he makes them kind of agree to something so that he gets what he wants from them. He's always negotiating. We're going to see him later on he tries to negotiate with the Ammonites, the enemies of Israel. And that's not going to go too well. But he always is negotiating, even to the point where he tries to negotiate with God. Piece of free advice. Don't negotiate with God. You can try but you'll be wasting your breath. You don't negotiate with God. You can ask God for things. You can come to him and you can petition God, but you don't negotiate with God. You don't say, well, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Because there's really nothing you have that God needs or wants other than your submission to his will. So don't negotiate with God. But we're going to see that's exactly what Jephthah does. So let's look at chapter 11, verse 29, where we left off last week and it seems to start out really good because it says then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah that's a good thing right no matter how you look at it that's a good thing Spirit of the Lord comes upon him so it sounds like we're off on a really good journey here with Jephthah what's the problem well we all know in this day and age because we've talked about it before just because the Holy Spirit came on you doesn't mean you do everything the Holy Spirit wants you to do and it also meant that he didn't stay with you permanently he would come on a person for a period of time and then he would vacate the premises we have him permanently if we're in christ and we still can live not according to the will of the holy spirit we can step out from under his will at any given moment in a heartbeat right we can be tracking along with the holy spirit and then something happens and we get distracted and we go off into the high weeds. so we're going to see that happen with him it says the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He passed through Gilead. Manasseh passed on to Misbah of Gilead. From Misbah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So something happens. When the Holy Spirit comes upon him, he begins this little journey. And we'll find out more about that. But then it says he makes a vow to the Lord. Now, it would be easy to connect those two things. Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and then he makes a vow. But I'm going to show you that I think there's a gap here. And here's why. He says... If you will, speaking to God, Yahweh, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now he vows a vow. That's what it means in the Hebrew. Nadar, nader. He vows a vow. To who? God. He makes a promise to God. Now is that wrong? No. But you better intend to keep it. You know, every guy in this room at some point in your life has said to God, and it usually happens at some negative point in your life where everything has gone south, you're out of control, you can't fix whatever the problem is, and you go, Lord, if you will get me out of this, I'll do X. And I can guarantee 99.9% of the time, none of us ever did X. God did whatever you wanted. He got you out of the predicament, but you never followed through on your promise. Now, that's a dangerous thing to do with God because God takes his word seriously and he takes our word seriously. That's why Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't even make vows to God. Just do what you say you're going to do. But he makes a promise to God and he begins to bargain with Jehovah. Now, everything about this to jump out at us. Why is he bargaining with God? Why is he trying to get something from God? He's basically saying, if you give me victory, I will sacrifice something to you. The text is really clear. I will offer up a burnt offering to you. Whatever comes out of the door of my house, I will offer up as a burnt offering. I think what we're seeing here is, yet again, another one of the leaders of Israel, another one of the judges of Israel, just like Gideon, who's become completely Canaanized. He is so absorbed by the culture in which he's growing up and living in that he really doesn't even know how to respond to and relate to God Almighty. And we got to give the guy some slack because he has grown up in an environment where Yahweh was kind of just a second-run, second-tier, relatively unknown God compared to all the other gods that they worship. He really didn't have a relationship with him. If you go all the way back to chapter 2, what did it tell us about the people of Israel in the day of the judges? It says that the first generation, the one Joshua was a part of, dies, and then there were... Another generation after them, that generation dies and goes away, and this new generation, which Jephthah is a part of, don't know the Lord. He doesn't really understand Yahweh. He doesn't really have a relationship. And as we said when we studied this chapter, it doesn't mean they didn't didn't know him at all or they were ignorant of him, devoid of any knowledge of him. They just didn't really have, didn't give a rip. They were indifferent to him. He's just another God, one of many gods. So here's Jephthah, and he knows probably more about the false gods than he knows about Yahweh. So when Yahweh starts talking to him, it doesn't mean he understands him. It doesn't mean he knows how to interrelate to him. He doesn't know the laws. He doesn't understand the promises. He's not really been taught. If his mom's a prostitute, it's very likely she's not been living for God, right? If she's a cult prostitute, she's obviously not been living for God. So this guy has not been raised in a godly home. Judges chapter 10 says, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites. Look at this list. Nine gods are listed in this passage. This is in chapter 10 during Gideon's reign. They're equal opportunity idolaters. Remember Gideon had the ephod? He makes it an idol and he puts it up in his town doesn't even give it a name and the people whore after it is what the passage says here we've got nine different gods listed in this verse that tell us the people were worshiping anything and everything and in this list there are at least half of these gods that they practiced human sacrifice to it was part of their worship and we know from elsewhere in scripture that the israelites were guilty of practicing child sacrifice it became part of their worship and God detested it, God hated it, but here's this poor guy, and I think Jephthah has no idea how to relate to Yahweh, and that's why all this stuff begins to happen in his life. He has no track record, he has no experience, he's never heard from God before, he doesn't have a godly background, he hasn't had godly parents, and so he has become paganized, Canaanized. He has become more like the world rather than having an influence on the world. And that's true of every guy in this room. At some point, we've become paganized. All of us are paganized at this moment in time in some way, some form, some fashion. We've been impacted by the world, and we make far little difference in the world at times according to what God would have us do. So he's got all this misunderstanding, misinformation regarding Yahweh, and he's trying to go to him, and he's trying to figure out, okay, how do I relate to this God? How do I interact with this God? And I love what Daniel Block says. He was still negotiating, manipulating God, and seeking to wrest concessions and favors from him like he had from the Gileadites and attempted to do with the Ammonites. And what they were used to in dealing with their other false gods. Every one of the false gods that they worshipped and that the Canaanites worshipped, you bargained with. If I want something from from Moloch, I offer up a child in hopes of getting a good harvest. You know, you sacrifice something to Asherah because that's the goddess of fertility. If your wife was barren, if something was going on, you gave the gods something in order to get something. They were used to bargaining. And so that's what he's trying to do with Yahweh. But I, I skip forward to Jeremiah. and Listen to what he says about the people of Israel years later. My people, God says, are foolish and don't know me. They're stupid children who have no understanding. They're clever enough at doing wrong, but they have no idea how to do right. How would you like for God to say that about you? I wouldn't want my dad to say that about me, let alone my heavenly father. But this is God speaking of his chosen people, and he says, they're stupid. They don't even know me. They don't understand me. Isaiah gets into the act, and he says, Even an ox knows its owner, and a donkey recognizes its master's care, but Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. They're dumb jackasses. This is God's view of his own people. They're stupid. They're morons. They're asses. They're, they're just, they don't understand. What is it they don't understand? They don't understand me. And guys, how, how important is it for you and I to understand God? Do we really understand and know our God? If you don't, you're going to come to him and you're going to react with him in a way that is inappropriate. And that's exactly, again, what we see Jephthah doing. So what happens? It says the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he passes through all these places, and what he's doing is he's gathering troops, and he's amassing troops under the influence and the direction of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to show up, and it says he passes on to the Ammonites. But I think there's something that we need to notice here, that between verse 29 and verse 30, there's this gap. It's, it's really not apparent, but I think it's if you study the passage and you look at it closely, you see that in verse 29, here's the Spirit leading him, guiding him, directing him, and it says he goes from here to here to here to here. He passes on. He passes through from one place to another. He's, it's like he's making a cycle through Manasseh, Ephraim, and he's getting soldiers to go fight the Ammonites on behalf of God. Remember, he's a judge, that's his job. But in verse 30, he seems to step out from under the Holy Spirit's leadership because he does something that is obviously not God's will. And again, we can do that in a heartbeat. I can have the greatest quiet time in the world, I can be right in track with God, I can pray, I can start my day, and then within 30 minutes I can be off in the weeds. And that's what happens to him. Here's the key transition, it says he passed on, he passed it from Gilead to Manasseh, back to Gilead, and he passes on to where, to the Ammonites. Who are the Ammonites? They're the enemy. And if you look at the Net Bible, it's translated, there he approached the Ammonites. It's like he comes over a a ridge and there they are laid out in all their glory. They're more powerful, they're better equipped, they're trained soldiers, and he's just got a ragtag group of men that he's gathered from the tribes of Israel. And he sees the enemy. Remember when uh, Gideon was up and he looks down and he sees in the valley the Midianites, 135,000 strong, and how many's he got? 300. And God goes, are you scared? Well, heck, yeah, I'm scared. Not only are they 300, they're 300 losers. And there's 135,000. See, this is exactly what I think is happening here. This guy is in a panic. He's done what the Holy Spirit's told him to do. He's gathered the truth, but he's kind of looking around going, this is it. I got to go fight this. And so what's he do? He begins to bargain with God. See, he wants victory every guy in this room wants victory right I want victory I want to be successful I want to be successful at life I want to be a successful husband father grandfather pastor believer he wants to be successful but his success is driven in a different way see he knows that to remain the leader over Gilead he's got to have victory remember what he told them? when they came to him and said hey outcast son of a prostitute if you'll lead us against the Ammonites, we'll make you the leader. He says, well, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head, I'll be your king, I'll be your leader. But he knows that the deities, whatever this deity is, Yahweh is gonna have to help him. So he knows he needs God's help. Well, if you need the God's help, what do you do? You give the God something. That's what he's used to, that's what he knows. But he's dependent upon this God, Yahweh, to help him. So, is that faith? Yeah, it's faith. But it's a twisted kind of faith. It's a distorted kind of faith because he doesn't fully understand his God. See, what he doesn't understand is that God's going to give him the victory regardless. God's the faithful one. God's the one who's sent him. God's the one who's called him. God's going to give him the victory, and he doesn't need to bargain. But see, his mind has been so warped by paganism and canonization that he thinks you don't get from a god something for nothing. There's no free lunch. He's going to need something from me. So what's he do? He makes this bargain. If, then. If you give me victory so that I can stay the head of the Gileadites and enjoy the leadership, and I'm no longer an outcast, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace, having won is the inference, I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, it's really interesting how many commentators struggle with this passage and go, well, uh, he's he's really not offering a, a sacrifice of a human. He's offering the sacrifice of some animal. Well, let's think about that for a second. What's he saying here? He says, if you give me victory, whatever comes out the door of my house, when I go home, I will offer up to you as what? An offering, a burnt offering. Now, there are some who say, well, he's expecting an animal to come out of the house. Well, they didn't keep animals in their house. They didn't keep sheep in their house. They didn't keep goats in their house. They most certainly didn't keep pigs in their house because they didn't have pigs. They didn't keep dogs in their house. Now, when I go home, my dog greets me. She can't see me anymore because she's near blind, and she can't hear me, but she knows I'm there somehow. And she gets all excited. But they didn't have dogs as pets. So what in the world is he expecting to come out of his house? One gentleman asked me on Tuesday, he said, well, I've heard that sometimes they had animals on the lower floor and they slept on the upper floor, and maybe he's thinking the animals are going to come out of the lower floor. The problem with that is that the wording here is really important. It says, when it comes out to greet me. In, in, the, in the Hebrew, that's a human interaction, not an animal-human interaction. Something, someone is going to come out and greet me. Now, who is he talking about? We're going to find out he's got one daughter and no kids except her. So he's got our daughter. Maybe his mother lives with him. Maybe he's at odds with his mother and he's hoping she comes out. Maybe his mother-in-law is living with him. Maybe he's got servants. We don't know why he makes this vow. Here's what we do know, it's a stupid vow. It's a rash vow. It's an ignorant vow. But he's basically offering up an offering to God, and this is an Old Testament quid pro quo. We've heard a lot about that over the last six months to a year. It's literally something that is given or taken in return for something else. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. He's playing make, make a deal. Let's make a deal, God. You give me victory, I'll give you an offering. I think, in a way, he's probably not expecting to even have to come through. I think he thinks he's going to get the victory, but he's not going to ever have to keep his word. And yet, he's going to. God's going to hold him accountable. Again, Daniel Block says, In this instance, Jephthah is neither rash nor pious. He's outrightly pagan. He's Canaanized. Rather than a sign of spiritual maturity, immaturity and folly like Gideon's ephod, His vow arose from a syncretistic religious environment. He is so utterly canonized, paganized. He's worldly. He's not godly. He doesn't know how to interact with God. And here's what's interesting. God never asks him to make this vow. God never commands him, hey, I'm going to give you victory, but you're going to have to give me something in return. This is all coming out of his head. Not led by the Holy Spirit, coming out of his mindset. And God never acknowledges the vow. He never goes, hey, okay, great. That's wonderful. Good idea. I appreciate that. And then he holds him to it. See, this is the part we get uncomfortable with. Why would God allow this man to kill his daughter? Why wouldn't God go, whoa, wait, wait." stop and think about what you just offered me there? But see, God's sovereign, God knows, and God knows his people are living outside of his will, and even this man whom he has chosen to lead his people is not living within his will, even though the Holy Spirit came upon him. And he's going to allow him, just like he allows you and me, to sometimes make decisions and allow those decisions to come to fruition so that we might learn from those decisions. See, I think everything about this story tells me that Jephthah makes a promise to God. And God's going to hold him accountable to that promise. Okay, you're going to do it. You're going to follow through. So it says in 32 that he goes to the Ammonites, he fights against them, and the Lord gives him victory. See, the Lord's involved. The Lord's got a plan. The Lord has something he's trying to do. And this guy Jephthah, in spite of all his flaws and his failings, enjoys the victory given to him by God over the enemies. And he, just, he strikes him with a great blow. But the other shoe drops, right? God did his part. Now he goes home, comes to his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. My kids never greeted me that way. She was, with, she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. His daughter walks out. It infers that he's a little bit surprised. And it's probably because she didn't normally greet him this way. Why is she coming out? Because God has given the victory and she's heard about it. Why she got a tambourine? Why is she dancing? She's not dancing because dad's home. She's dancing because God gave him victory over the enemy. And he's shocked. He's a little bit surprised. And as soon as he sees her, he tears his clothes. He says, alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. You've become the cause of great trouble to me. I have opened my mouth to the Lord. What's his name? He opens. I've opened my mouth to the Lord. I made a promise to the Lord, and I can't take it back. I cannot take back my vow. Now, listen to what she says. And she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth. Now, I'm sarcastic, so I read a little sarcasm into that. I don't think it's there. It's like, yeah, Dad, you did open your stupid, big, fat mouth. And I'm the one that's going to suffer. But that's not what she's saying. She says, you did open your mouth. Listen to what she says. I don't have any clue how old this girl is. And she says do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies and on the Ammonites and then she's gonna say dad keep your will keep keep your commitment to God because God's kept his commitment to you be faithful to him even though it means that I'm going to die all she asks is give me two months to go mourn with my friends and he does that she has two months to just go mourn with her friends but she, she's got more faith than he does. She's more godly than he is. We don't know why. We don't know where she got this from. But she understands you made a vow to God. You made a promise to God. And you got to keep your vow even though you've got a big mouth. And see, what I read in this passage too is that not only did he have a big mouth, he's got a huge ego. Because look at how he reacts to her. When he sees her, he says, alas, my daughter, you brought me very low. And then he goes on and says, you've caused great trouble to me. Not once in this passage as he goes, honey, I am so sorry. I never should have made that vow. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to keep that vow. I'm not going to put you to death. That, that, I'm, I'll disobey God before I kill you. He, he doesn't even express the remotest amount of sorrow because he's obsessed with success. He wants victory, and so he's going to follow through. Because we know she comes back in verse 39. At the end of the two months she returns, and he did to her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Now there's some commentators who say, no, all she did was give up her her right to have a husband. She never had sex. She was a permanent um, virgin. Okay, well then what do we do with the whole burnt offering thing? No, he kept his commitment, and he offered up his daughter as a sacrifice. Otherwise, why are these people lamenting every year? What are they lamenting? They're lamenting that this poor innocent girl was offered up as a sacrifice in order that her father could have victory over the Ammonites. And it reminds me of what happened with Abimelech. He killed 70 of his his brothers just so he could be king. We see Jephthah do the same thing now with his daughter. His vow is unwise, his vow is ungodly along with the sacrifice, and it's totally unnecessary. His daughter did not need to die to have victory. And you may be thinking, well, this has nothing to do with me. I would never offer up my child like that. That's not the point. The point is, how well do you know your God? How how well do you know your God to know how to interact with your God and how, how to make whether or not to make a promise to God, and what kind of promises should I make, and are you going to keep that promise, and do you understand how your God works? Otherwise, you're going to always offer up to God things that he doesn't want or need. God, I'll do this for you. God, I'll do, if, you just, if you just help me here, I'll do this for you. And he's like, I don't need your help. I want you to want my help with nothing in return because that's the kind of God I am. And so all of this is unnecessary And then immediately after it happens, this is fascinating to me. Chapter 12 introduces a little scenario that we've seen before. The men of Ephraim, the Ephraimites come, and they're mad. And they go to him, and they say, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites, and you didn't call us to go with you? And this guy's just sacrificed his daughter. He's just killed his own daughter, and these bozos show up, and they're mad because they didn't get invited to the battle. And again, we've seen this before. And they say, we're going to burn down your house and everybody in it. I don't know how he reacted to that, but he's probably not a happy camper, and we'll see he takes it out on him because, oh, you want to burn down my house after I just burned down my daughter. But what happens? We've seen this before with Gideon. They came to him and said, after his battle against the Midianites, and they said, what is this that you've done to us not to call us when you went to fight against the Midianites? And they accused him fiercely, and he was able to calm them down. He, He negotiated and got a peace. That doesn't happen with Jephthah. And I think part of it is because he's so hacked. I just had to kill my daughter. Now you idiots are showing up and you're arguing just because you didn't get to come fight and you're jealous. So he gathers all the men of Gilead and they fought against Ephraim. Now keep in mind what's going on here. Ephraimites are Hebrews, Gileadites are Hebrews. It's Hebrew against Hebrew. This is not the will of God. Nothing about this is good. And they strike them and there's animosity and there's all kinds of things going on in this passage and if we fast forward what happens 42,000 Ephraimites fell they kill 42,000 of their own people because they can't get along What, what is it again what does this remind you of what what does it go back and hearken to it hearkens to this all the evil and how bad it's getting it's not getting better it's getting worse and that's what's happening here in this story fratricide in no way is good between the people of god we should not be fighting they shouldn't be fighting they're killing one another instead of going against the enemy if you remember back in chapter one they came to the the people came to god and they said who should go up first against the enemy and god says judah and the tribe of judah goes to the tribe of simeon and they said hey come help us and they unify and they go and fight and they had victory after victory after victory See, unity was what God wanted. Now they're living in disunity. Remember how Gideon killed the people of Penuel because they wouldn't feed his 300 men? Abimelech killed 70 brothers. He killed 1,000 Shechemites. Now, see how fast it gets to the worst point? 42,000 Ephraimites are killed by Jephthah. What are they arguing over? That you didn't invite us into the victory that God gave. Well, I'm jealous you know there are pastors in the city who are jealous of other churches because they have more members or they have bigger buildings and they seem to be more successful and so they fight and they bicker and they wish ill will that's not what God wanted and yet the guy goes on he judges for six years and then he dies everybody dies that's the repeating pattern in the story and we know when judges die, nothing usually goes well In this case, it skips forward and it tells us about three judges we know nothing about, and so we're going to blow past them, Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. Why does the author not tell us more about these men? We don't know. All we know is they reign for seven years, ten years, eight years, for a total of 25 years of relative peace. We know Israel's still doing evil in these days. We still know they're unfaithful. We still know they're worshiping other gods. It's not an idyllic situation, but they're going to be followed by... Somebody really special Samson who we probably know more about than any other character in the Bible and most of what we know about him is probably flawed um, because it came out of a really bad Sunday school story but we're going to find out more about this guy but let's find out how he comes into the scene so really quickly chapter 13 starts out with an interesting statement that we've heard before the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord they still worshiping false gods And the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. That's a long time. Who are the Philistines? They live along the coast in what is now Palestine, that Gaza Strip area. They're a sea people. They're Phoenicians who landed there, and they took over the land. And they will be the bane of existence for Israel for years, all the way up through King David. And it says in the middle of this, verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, one of the smallest tribes of Israel who is this guy and why is he being introduced into this story and why in the midst of the 40 years of pain well there's this is telling us that for 40 years they lived in physical barrenness the philistines were attacking them for 40 years and we've seen the story of when the enemy attacks bad things happen chapter 2 says they came and they stole their possessions chapter 6 tells us they took everything that they had to eat And they left the land stripped bare. They took everything. It's a picture of physical barrenness for 40 years. And it's all because of their own spiritual barrenness. Why were they suffering? Because they weren't worshiping properly. And so into the midst of this, God introduces this man, a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. This is all we know about this man. We don't know anything about him. We never even get his wife's name. All we know is she's barren. And an angel shows up, which tells us that God shows up, and the angel tells this woman, hey, you're barren. I'd love to see the look in her face. Like, yeah, I know that. Tell me something I don't know. And the angel's about to tell her, I'm going to tell you something you would never dream of. He tells her, you shall conceive and bear a son. See, there's something... God is about to do something pretty incredible. And we need to understand this when we look at Samson's life, because it'll put it in the proper context. God is going to do a miracle. This barren woman who we know nothing about, we don't even know her name, is gonna be used by God, which should remind you of another woman. Isaiah predicted, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew picks up on it. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And then Luke picks it up, and he says, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be the Savior of his people. See, one of the things that we never look at is that Samson is a type of Jesus. He's, he's the Savior of his people, but he's a lousy Savior. He's like the worst type of Jesus you could ever find. He's the polar opposite of Jesus, but he has all the blessings born of God, sent by God, miracle of God. And I think chapter 13 is really meant to be an encouragement. Even to the people reading it back centuries ago, they would read the story and they would realize a woman's gonna conceive. And they probably thought Messiah, they probably thought maybe this is who Samson was supposed to be and he blew it. But they do know that God's involved and he's getting involved in a way they've never seen before. This woman who's barren is going to bear a child and he's going to be the savior of Israel. But well, what's interesting is what God tells her. He tells this mother, be careful, don't drink any wine, don't drink strong drink, eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son and he shall be a Nazarite. Don't cut his hair. He's, you're going to make a vow on behalf of your unborn son. And all of this is pretty interesting. What's interesting to me is that it says, don't eat anything unclean. Why does the angel have to tell them that? They shouldn't have been eating unclean food anyway. But what does it tell us? They're paganized. They're Canaanized. So don't drink wine. Don't drink, drink strong drink. Eat nothing unclean. And if you fast forward to verse 14, even the husband is told, make sure your wife is careful not to eat anything that comes with the vine, neither... Let her drink wine or strong drink. Don't eat anything unclean. So two times, this warning goes out to her. Now, why? I never noticed this before. Why is God requiring her to live like a Nazarite before her son is even born to prepare the way for her son? Think about your children. Your children may be grown. Think about your grandchildren. But if you have kids living in your home, you are to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's what this woman was to do. She was to live like a Nazirite so that her hun would walk into a home and be born into a home that was holy and set apart, which is what a Nazirite is. See, yes, he's going to be a Nazirite. We'll find out more about that. But why is God commanding her to live like a Nazirite? Because God wants that whole home to be holy and set apart. See, these are the Nazirite vows. When you make this vow... You separate yourself to the Lord. You separate yourself from wine and strong drink. You don't drink vinegar made from wine. You don't drink strong drink. You shall not eat juice of the grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be. This child was holy, set apart by God. This home was going to be holy, set apart by God. Manoah and his wife had been chosen by God for a special purpose to bear this son that God was sending. God was placing him in in an incredible role of responsibility to care for this child, putting them under his care that they would raise him up, but they're gonna prove to be really lousy at this job. They're gonna prove to not be able to do what Barry did and Joseph did. See, we know Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. We're not gonna see the same picture with Samson. One of the things that jumps out at me in this story of Samson is that he's a stand-in for Israel as well. Not only is he a type of Christ, he is an exact representation and microcosm of Israel. He's, been, he's going to be miraculously born by the will of God. He comes into the world because God wants him to be born. Same thing with Israel. He's called to a life of separation and devotion. They are God's chosen people, holy, set apart to live differently. They never did. He's rash. He's opportunistic. He's impulsive, so is Israel. He's driven constantly by his physical appetites, can't keep his hands off women and mostly Philistine women, prostitutes, and the Israelites had the same problem. His life is characterized by deceit, and he's possessed by a false sense of pride. He represents Israel in a microcosm, but he's a type of Christ. He should have represented God. So what happens? The woman bore a son, called his name Samson. The young man grew. The Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Again, we see this chapter in a semi-positive note, but we're going to see next week that it goes so south so fast in this guy's life that it's amazing. And it's important for us to know how he came to be so that we understand where he went with all that God had done with him and for him. He was blessed. The Spirit began to stir in him. But I want to close with this because this is the most important thing, I think, out of the lesson this morning. Two times in this passage, Mano and his wife are told to be careful. First to Samson's mother, be careful, don't drink wine, strong drink, eat nothing unclean. Then the angel says to the father the same thing, hey, be careful that your wife is careful. And what this word means is be on guard, guard yourself, be careful, watch out, be alert. Because in Deuteronomy 4 and 9, God said to his people, Only take care, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children. Teach these things to your children and your children's children, grandchildren, great grandchildren. Gather the people that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. So, See, what jumps out at me, guys, is that I have a responsibility. My days of parenting are gone. My kids are all adults, and now I have grandkids. But I have a responsibility to the next generation, whether they're my kids or not, to pour into them what I know about my God because I don't want the next generation to be ignorant of God. Otherwise you end up with Jephthas, Samsons. See, they wanted they needed to be careful. And that was that's what leads me to the first question. Why is it so important that Manoah and his wife be careful? with what God's telling them to do. Remember, don't drink wine. Don't drink strong drink. Don't eat unclean meat. Don't do these things. Be holy. Be set apart in a midst of unholiness and unset apartness. You got to be different because I'm bringing a man into your home, a boy into your home who will grow to be a man who will be the Savior of Israel. Why is that so important that they be careful? And what happens if they fail to do so? It's the story of Samson. See, I don't know how your kids have turned out. I'm blessed that my kids have turned out well. But for some of us, maybe our kids haven't turned out well. I'm not blaming that on you. In no way am I trying to heap guilt on you. But here's what I do know, that we have a responsibility to raise up the next generation. So what are some ways in which you can become careless in living out your life as a Christian and it has a negative impact on those around you, especially those who live in your your household? See, what we're going to see is that Manoah and his wife may have kept this vow in terms of not drinking wine and strong drink and not eating unclean meat, but they proved to be really, really bad parents. Because by the time their kid got to be old, he was off in the high weeds and they were walking right along with him. And that's why things go south. Finally, are there times when your relationship with God reveals that you've been Canaanized? What does that look like, and why is it so dangerous? And every man in this room has been canonized to some in some form or fashion, to some degree or another. What do we do about it? And why is it so harmful to our lives and ultimately to the lives of our kids, our grandkids, and those who come behind us? Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for your word. Thank you for... The story of Jephthah, the story of the judges, thank you for how you show us through your word what happened in the past so that it might not happen again in the future. That we are to learn from these stories, not point our finger at them, not laugh at them for their stupidity, but to realize that, Father, but for the grace of God, go I. So would you bless the time around the tables, guide and direct these guys as they talk and share, help them to be honest and open, accepting, gracious, loving, and kind, And Father, would you push us further and further toward yourself that we might understand you more so that we might live for you better. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.